We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, owner of Circle Social Inc., Nick Jaworski. Uh, today, we have Andrew Sidoli on the podcast. He is someone I've connected with a couple of times. And I've always been really impressed with both his, his clinical background as well as his operational expertise. And that is something that you don't often find. Usually people are one or the other. They tend to be clinical or they tend to have that kind of business perspective. Andrew has both. And he also has some very interesting ideas and I think some very much needed perspective on building systems and policies and practices within the behavioral health space that are effective, while at the same time balancing that with very needed training and allowing good people to do good work and what it means to help develop clinicians within the clinical space on top of any kind of organizational procedures and policies and standardization that occurs. He also has a very patient-centered perspective, which um, as anyone that follows me knows, I'm very passionate about. So exciting discussion there. Obviously, before we get started, I want to mention our wonderful sponsors, uh, Verify TX. They are the leading on-demand insurance verification platform for the recovery industry. You know, when seconds can make a difference between admitting a qualified client, losing them to a change of heart, a competitor, worse, you know, Verify TX gives your team the tools they need to save a life. They're available 24-7, 365 from any device. You can do a demo, just go to their web, website at verifytx.com. And if you call, and I recommend that you do call, I recommend the Recovery Executive Podcast and they'll give you a special offer. So um, you guys all know that I'm a huge supporter of Verify TX and John and his team and what they do over there. It's a very cost-effective solution and the value you get out of it is far beyond the cost that you guys are paying. So definitely reach out to them, give them a call. Okay, so before we kind of jump into this conversation with Andrew, I want to preface it a little bit, maybe a little bit longer than I usually do just because I'm so passionate about this topic. Patient-centered therapy, patient-centered clinical approaches are something that is often lacking um, in many clinical programs across the country. And I think back to my own experience, you know, going through treatment, and for me, it was a very large waste of time. You have a lot of compliance, right, in many programs. This is like, do what I say, do what I want you to do. And I think, as we all know, that doesn't really jive um, that kind of top-down authority doesn't connect with a lot of people struggling with addiction for a variety of reasons. And so it tends to be ineffective, right? People go through the programs, and as they go through the programs, they just say what they're supposed to say, they do what they're supposed to do, because they know if they don't that it's just going to cause additional problems for them. So they get out and they start using again, right? We see this problem all the time. We see a lot of relapses. So the way to solve that is to be patient-centered, right? We all know what the courts want. We know what the family wants. We know what the employer wants, right? Very few people are asking what the patient wants or what the patient needs. And that's a huge problem. That is not setting you up for success. One of the reasons that motivational interviewing as a clinical technique is so effective um, and why the evidence is so strong behind it is because you are starting with the patient. You're starting with building the empathy that's needed to actually have a rapport that's going to open doors and open the ways for a unique approach. And something that's really important from a motivational interviewing standpoint is that it tries to be non-judgmental. And this is where a lot of clinicians and therapists struggle is they often want to impose their worldview on someone else. They want to say that this is the right way to do it or this is the only way to do that. We all know that there are many pathways to recovery, right? Um, the evidence is very clear, data is very clear that people do not go through the same program or need the same things and achieve recovery in the same ways. There's a lot of different options out there. However, from a program and a management and a business standpoint, you need standardization, you need processes and systems for a more uniform experience for many reasons. And a core reason for that is the clinical excellence you can have and then program integrity, right? So I don't want to have a program where I'm letting the therapist do whatever they want in a very eclectic approach because I might have one clinician that is very 12-step facilitation based and that's what they're doing. And then another clinician that is very just focused on CBT, uh, DBT doesn't do much of the 12-step piece. Well, both of those can be effective techniques, but 
how can you build a reputation? How can you build a business? How can you build systems if everyone is doing different things? So what you really want is you want that core integrity, that clinical excellence that you have to be somewhat more uniform so that that can be put into any outreach materials. It can put in your marketing. It can be put into the way that people are talking to potential patients on the phone or in person because that allows for someone that maybe would really benefit from a 12-step approach to find you and know that this is a good fit for them. Whereas you have other people that a 12-step approach is not good for them. They want more therapeutic, right? They want more psychoanalytical. So they're going to go for the CBT or the DBT. That's a better fit for them. And so if they don't know that going in, that's going to cause a lot of problems, right? Uh, another piece that you want there is obviously the training and the systems you can develop. Because if you standardize things and you know that there's a certain level of quality that you can attain, you can put measurement around that, outcomes around that. And you can also provide a lot more effective training. So very, very important to have that strong connection between what your clinical is offering and what you're telling patients that you're offering. There's all these advantages there. Um, but we have to make sure that we're not putting our judgments upon the patient saying, well, this is the way that you have to do it because this is the way that I like to do it, right? It's not about what you like. It's about what works for the patient. And that's what we have to understand. And that's what me and Andrew talk a lot about is how do we understand what the outcomes are for the patient not the fact that we just covered the clinical protocols we have in place or you know we emphasize our worldviews because when you look at a worldview and i think again back to my own experience you know i grew up in a very blue collar small town you know 50,000 people in the middle of wisconsin and the kind of life that i saw before me as a young man was well go to college, you get a job in like a factory or an office or something, you're, you know, making maybe forty, fifty thousand $50,000 a year, not much, you get into retirement, you scrape by in retirement and you die, right? Not a very exciting lifestyle. And so when you have a therapist approach you or other people approach you, families, court systems and say, okay, well, we want you to have this life. We want this nine to five job. You want to have this mortgage. You want to have 2.5 kids, right? Then you want to retire, scrape by and die. Not a very attractive perspective for many people, right? And so if you're trying to push something that the patient doesn't want, why would they respond or why are they going to work towards that goal? And a quote that I have that Andrew said that I love is that drugs and addiction, behavioral addictions, substance addictions, whatever it is, are a solution, right? They are a solution for the person. If they weren't, they wouldn't be using them. doesn't mean that they're not causing problems in addition to that, but we all have things in our lives that we do that are not great for us, right? But we still do them because we enjoy the benefit more than we enjoy the negative consequence. And so addiction is no different here. And so we have to understand what that solution is for that person. We have to understand what their values are, what's important to them. And then from there, we can build unique, tailored, individualized clinical programming that fits in with our core program. So then you get into this challenge, right, of systems versus experience, because you want the standardization in place. You want your clinicians to be doing, you know, roughly the same things or starting from the same points. You know what works, you know what's effective. Um, hopefully you have that data and the outcomes to build those systems. But at the same time, clinical experience is something that can't just be given to someone. It has to be a lived experience that is learned. You know, you can't just go to your neighbor and say, well, here's our clinical protocol. Can you please go run our groups this week? Right. It's not going to work because your clinical protocol, as wonderful as it is, is not what is driving the group process. Right. It's not what's driving the therapy um, that comes from the human element, the human capital. That's very, very important in these situations. So, you know, I often say the same thing from whether they talk about legal or marketing or building a business. I can't give you a template. You can't go plug and play this and get positive results because there's so much lived experience, knowledge and wisdom that exists within people that can't be given to someone in a document or a checklist, right? It's something that's adapting to situations, that's adapting to new events, um, that's just very, very hard to acquire. And so that's why it's really important to have this mix of standardized systems, but also allowing people to bring their experience to bear and do what's right for the patients to get the best outcomes. Now, part of that systems process that Andrew gets into is training and development and feedback loops, because I can bring in a clinician, but they 
still have lots of things to learn, right? They can learn as much from the patients as the patients can learn from them. And when you set up those feedback loops, it allows them to become better clinicians over time. And that also allows you to build better systems, better clinical programming. So it's not necessarily just about having a good clinician with a good system in place. Part of your system has to be the feedback loops that are established so that learning and development occurs so that you get better over time. And that was something I really love that Andrew said. So I know that's a very long introduction, but I wanted to kind of give that background because one, like I said, I'm very, very passionate about this approach and how important it is and how much value I think a lot of existing programs could get from it. But also we, we had a pretty winding conversation. So I kind of wanted to preface it with this introduction to give people, you know, kind of a, a more overall framework and better understanding. So as you listen to Andrew, I want you to think about that. How can this be more patient-centered? How can what I do in my own program be more patient-centered? You know, where is the patient in my process and how is what Andrew's talking about something that maybe we could look at implementing better within our own systems? So I appreciate you bearing with me through all that. And let's listen to what Andrew has to say because he is definitely the expert in this area. Hey, Andrew, appreciate you coming on, taking the time today. I know you got to jump on a flight here and making time for us, so that's always great. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing now? Yeah, um, thank you, Nick. I appreciate you inviting me to, uh, to speak. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker and addiction counselor, and I have been working uh, in a variety of uh, different settings, everything from detox, uh, county detox, to private detox. I work with nonprofit, with the homeless, children, youth, and family programs. I've been in private practice, and for the last 10 years, I have been clinical director uh, in a variety of different um, agencies, both for short-term and long-term residential care, PHP, and um, IOP. My uh, focus concentration is on trauma, both attachment and developmental trauma, and um, PTSD and uh, acute uh, trauma. I'm working with a substance abuse disorder population and mental health population. Great. So something unique about you is that you have the clinical director role, but you also operated as a COO for a while. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, my, uh, it, I didn't start out that way, uh, but in an effort to improve uh, clinical services and maintain uh, a clinical standard, um, I found myself gravitating towards operations to make sure that um, either the clinicians or the clinical director uh, under me, uh, when I was operating multiple agencies, would have the necessary resources to be able to uh, provide excellence in clinical care. Sure, and so the really interesting, I think, conversations that we've had um, and why I wanted to bring you on the show here is that background of having both operational experience as well as um, clinical directing experience. But then you also have a very unique perspective and I think a very needed perspective on matching the two and what is perhaps lacking in the field in terms of um, standardizations and protocols and things like that. So can you jump in a little bit and explain, you know, where you see some gaps or what you see is maybe necessary for centers to do combining the operations and the clinical? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, my observation has been that there tend to be um, two different cultures uh, in an agency or two different value sets, if you like. Um, there is the delivery of services, so it's clinical or frontline staff, and that is a very, um, you know, mission-driven and idealistic uh, value set, wanting to do the absolute best for uh, the patients that are being cared for. And then there is the operational side, which um, obviously includes uh, finances. And um, after all, these are run as a businesses, uh, whether it's for profit or not for profit. And um, that's a very different uh, value set. Um, and I find that the two values are often uh, clashing and, and sometimes uh, somewhat conflictual uh, in an agency. So how do you align those two value systems then? Because you're right, right, this is a common issue in most centers. Um, you know, so what have you done in your roles to make sure that people are working together and seeing the same vision? 
Well, I found that uh, being a clinician myself and moving into um, operations, um, first of all, I've been able to um, have the uh, trust of the clinical teams, knowing that, you know, I was mission-driven and therefore sort of patient-centered. Um, my ability to work with um, an executive team in um, maintaining uh, costs and uh, maintaining a sort of fiscal responsibility um, has uh, come through a sort of pragmatic approach to um, be able to maximize revenue for a company or for an agency and at the same time making sure that that revenue would be going back into the flow to improve services. After all, uh, when services are improved and patients are doing well, um, that speaks to outcomes and of course that speaks to the reputation of an agency and therefore its whole sort of marketing plan and business plan. And this is something we've talked about before is how the clinical program actually drives performance and revenue. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Where do you see that coming to the fore? Or how do you see that being a major factor in revenue that you know maybe most centers aren't looking at necessarily? Well, um, a, lot, a lot goes into um, having a very um, clear um, clinical mission and being very clear about the services that you deliver. Um, trainings for clinicians um, so um, that clinicians are more apt or adept at um, doing, for example, utilization reviews, which uh, drive length of stay and um, drive the bottom line. Um, those are things that I have undertaken over the course of years um, with pretty, uh, pretty good effect. It's an interesting fact that um, most clinicians who come out of, um, out of colleges have had absolutely no experience and no training in how to really work with documentation when it comes to utilization reviews or even understanding um, a SAM criteria or what is expected from uh, an insurance payer. Um, as far as clinical documentation. So um, that's, um, that's an, an interesting um, sort of kind of tidbit. The other piece, too, is that with a lot of agencies, because there is a um, case management or utilization review um, um, department, um, that responsibility is sort of passed on to that department as opposed to the clinical team per se. So I think there is um, there is le less of an ability to advocate for uh, for the patient when that responsibility is passed on to the uh, case managers or utilization review team, as opposed to the clinician doing this themselves. So I'd say that's pretty common. You know, a lot of programs outsource their billing or their UR um, or have non-medical professionals doing the UR. So in your roles in the past, have you had your clinicians actually doing the UR, and how did you set that up? Well, we set it up by looking at um, specifically what kind of questions uh, and what kind of criteria or evidence uh, the payers want, uh, whether it's a sort of CMS or whether it's um, a private payer, uh, and then providing uh, very specific trainings and engaging with um, others in the community or bringing in specialists to provide trainings for the clinicians. But even in a, um, in a scenario where um, you are outsourcing uh, your, your billing or case management, it still uh, behooves the um, organization to provide the best trainings possible for the clinicians. Because after all, um, whether it's a utilization review inside the agency or outsourced, um, they can only advocate with the information that they have they have at hand. So, um, what one of the things that I see often is that they there isn't a really good narrative about the patient, how well the patient or how you know how poorly the patient is doing with an integration of all documentation um, from the facility. That would be, for example, you know. Um, the clinical piece, the medical piece, the case management piece, um, the family piece, uh, and other um, other areas of recovery capital that the patient may or may not have. And all those areas go to speak well to a utilization review and um, go to advocate for a longer length of stay. 
So would you recommend that the clinician does the UR for the patients that they're working with, or would you recommend having, you know, uh, a single clinician maybe whose whole sole role is just to do UR? Um, that that depends. I mean, if the clinician is also, if that's the primary responsibility of the clinician, and there is a um, there is a system within an agency to allow for that individual to also um, engage with all the clinicians and gather uh, the information, that can work as well. I just feel that for a clinician who's working with patients who has a, a caseload, that um, that skill set it really translates into a higher level of um, documentation ability. So, you know, the utilization review is the end goal, but it really ups the game for the clinician because it's a, there's a very clean and very solid framework for uh, being able to document what's happening with the patient. So something we talked about earlier um, before we got on the podcast here was setting up protocols for clinicians, right? Um, what kind of protocols do you recommend? So we've got the UR that we're talking about, but what else do you think needs to be set up at the center level? Well, um, the vast majority of uh, treatment centers, you know, start off with a biopsychosocial, and that is the starting uh, document to get an authorization. And then Generally, the, the clinician meets with the patient, um, creates a treatment plan, and moves on with the course of therapy. Um, I think that biopsychosocials have become rather um, uh, a skimpy document these days, given the fact that they are, um, you know, um, uh, they're delivered through a, an electronic uh, medical system. So the whole process has become a little dry in the sense that, whereas, you know, Back when I was training, um, it was a full interview process. It could take two, three, three and a half hours. Um, uh, and it was a very um, engaging process with the patient. Nowadays, it's more of a data entry uh, practice. So I think some really relevant pieces of information are missed. So um, I do believe that uh, clinicians really be, need to be trained in how to deliver a biopsychosocial assessment whilst maintaining um, a rapport with the client. Also, um, even though it, it's often covered in a uh, biopsychosocial uh, assessment, further clinical assessments, and there's a lot available, um, should be uh, delivered before a treatment plan um, is uh, is crafted. So everything from a, um, uh, a trauma assessment, um, eating disorder assessment, uh, gambling, sex addiction, um, an attachment uh, in interview, uh, the Socrates. There are a number of really good clinical assessments that are available that can really tease out a full picture before a treatment plan is executed and before uh, one launches into therapy. There's a tendency generally, um, and the patients often bring this to the center, that you know, they, they want to start engaging and then they want to start um, you know, sort of processing stuff and yet um, taking time and thinking more of a sort of medical uh, model in um, really assessing the patient's um, needs is, um, is really worthwhile in, in the long term. So there are a lot of assessment instruments out there. Are there particular instruments that you recommend centers should be using? Um, some of the ones that I mentioned. Um, there's, there's, uh, I, uh, I've been using the adult attachment interview for a number of years. It really gives a very good uh, assessment of how a patient's uh, primary caregivers have uh, created attachment. And generally... Um, Attachment is something that and, uh, speaks to um, the, the quality of the relationship that uh, somebody has had in early life. Those generally speak to um, how a patient is going to relate both to themselves, to others, and then um, their sort of worldview in particular. So I found it to be a foundational document that can be used through the course of somebody's therapy, not just during a residential stay, but um, you know, for the course for the course of therapy. 
So we've got these dimensional one. Sure. So you've got some of these assessments here that you're talking about, and that is going to help you tailor an individualized treatment program. And I think you're right. A lot of programs just do a perfunctory assessment these days um, and send it off for insurance verification, really. But you know, when you sit down with the patient and actually get into all of the issues that are going on, you know, the biopsychosocial, then you have a much better chance of positive outcomes for those patients, right? Um, but how do you right. set that up? I mean, I think so many programs struggle with, you know, individualizing tracks and individualizing therapy, you know, as in your role from the operations and the medical end. What do you do or how do you structure that within your program? Well, uh, you know, part of the problem is that we're so often focused on uh, the symptomatology of the patient and the presenting problem and crises that um, it's very difficult to maintain um, focus on the underlying causes. Um, it's also difficult in an agency that has a, a number of therapists to standardize a uh, level of care. Um, I find it interesting when I interview therapists that, you know, generally when I ask a therapist, what's your uh, predilection, what's your sort of kind of core uh, skill set, um, most people nowadays reply that they are um, eclectic. Um, and um, if you have 10 therapists in your center who are eclectic, um, it's very difficult for all patients to get a uh, similar or standardized experience. So um, in, in designing a program, I find that there is an interesting juxtaposition of um, both individualized care, uh, client-centered care from a therapist perspective, and also standardizing um, the, the delivery of um, the psychoeducational material and how you engage the patients. Because otherwise, each patient ends up receiving a very different experience from their treatment stay, depending on who they've had as a therapist and what their particular skill set is. I mean, I think that's a problem that every center struggles with, right? So what are the pros and cons there? Because there's a certain advantage to standardization, right? It creates a cohesive experience. You know, you know what you're clinicians are doing, what the patients are receiving, but at the same time, you need to individualize and tailor the treatment programs, right? So how, how do you strike that balance? Well, <clears throat> I think that one of the things that we've generally been uh, focused on is um, the um, length of stay as a predictor of successful outcome. You know, we've been looking at studies by SAMHSA and so on and so forth through the 60 plus years that we've been delivering substance use disorder uh, treatment programs. Um, and a lot less uh, focus has been put on um, assessing what patients actually assimilate uh, during treatment. So um, I think that one way of helping a center to look at what uh, they're actually doing is to uh, start uh, testing the patients to see what they are assimilating from the curriculum. Um, so one way of doing that is pretty much like any educational um, or academic um, uh, delivery um, is to think about what is the clinical objective, what's the psychoeducational objective, and how can we measure what uh, patients are assimilating. Um, because especially in a group setting, when you have a dozen patients who are at different stages of the process, you have a number of issues that can really impact uh, a patient's ability to assimilate material. So there are sort of learning styles. There is the delivery of the clinician. There is the um, there are, there's TBI. There is um, dissociation by patients. There are medication issues. There are sleep hygiene issues, and all those. Um, I, I've even noticed that, that there is a difference between what patients assimilate in the morning groups versus the afternoon groups when they tend to get on sort of assimilation um, overload. So there, uh, there, there's a number of things that one can start to look at insofar as what is it that we think that we're doing and what, is, what kind of information are we delivering to the patients and how are the patients um, both responding to this, 
how much are they assimilating? And um, ultimately, if we want to be um, feedback informed, in other words, truly be client-centered and receive information from the patients that we're seeing whilst they're in treatment, uh, and not, you know, after the fact, because after the fact, um, we'll maybe help the next cohort. But the idea is to uh, focus on the patients who are in, uh, in treatment and to basically ask them whether they find the material that we're sharing with them um, effective and uh, useful. Because um, sometimes as clinicians, we may have great ideas about what constitutes a fantastic curriculum, or we may be using sort of traditional methods or traditional curriculums, um, but we also need to um, test out our, um, you know, our ideas uh, with our patients. I think you bring up several crucial points here, and this is something that I've always advocated um, from the beginning when I really got into this field of being patient-centered, and I think a lot of programs are more clinician-centered than patient-centered, right? And there are so many parallels to my experience in the educational world um, as there are within the clinical and the therapeutic world. You know, I used to see the same thing. I said there's a very huge difference between covering content right, and teaching and learning from the student end. And the same thing goes in the clinical world where there's a huge difference between going through your clinical protocols and talking about whatever you need to talk about or actually making sure that the patients are learning. Um, A real easy example is back when I used to run schools with kids, you know, you would see like a question on some assessment that the teacher had designed and you'd have an A and a B and the A would be like there are three apples and then the B would be there are six oranges, you know, and the kids knew what the apples were and there was a picture of an apple in the question. And so they didn't need to understand the math piece of it, right? They didn't have to understand the counting that was part of the question. You know, three or four didn't matter. They just saw apples, so they picked A, right? When what the teacher was actually trying to assess was if they could count between three and four. And so there was always this huge mismatch between what was being taught and what was being learned or how it was being assessed. Uh, So again, I see that on the clinical perspective as well. When you're talking about being patient-centered and trying to understand what the patients have absorbed, not what's been covered, um, how do you structure that, right? How do you make sure that the clinicians are able to assess that effectively? Well, I, I think that sort of starts uh, at the beginning on, um, on the creation of the curriculum and um, much like you know, your experience in the educational field, you can test out uh, the patients with a number of questions at the end of every psychoeducational group. Um, You know, one of the the benefits, for example, of uh, then gathering all the information from the patients after a group, and it doesn't have to be psychoeducational, it can also be process group, but when you have the the patients speaking to what they've learned in the group, um, it's actually uh, really uh, quite illuminating because generally in a group uh, setting, um, you know, the clinician leads the group and it may be process or it may be psychoeducation or it may be a hybrid. Uh, and then the clinician uh, will sort of go back to his office and, and write group notes. And the only information or data that that clinician has is through the patient interaction. So in generally in every group, you have a number of patients who are more uh, active and more participating. Um, and then you have patients who are more sort of quiet or uh, introspective or introverted, and they tend to say less and they need to be drawn out. But um, I, in my observation, um, sometimes the patients who are very active in a group are actually absorbing less than the patients who are quieter. Um, and so... If you have data from all 12 group participants about what has happened in that group for each of them, that actually is really useful clinical data that can both be going back to the individual or primary therapist, but can also give uh, some meat and bones to your clinical note, therefore actually uh, increasing your efficacy in a uh, utilization review when speaking to what happened in group. Otherwise, it's pretty much sort of guesswork or clinical intuition or observation from that clinical uh, staff member, but um, you're missing a lot of data. So how is that structured? I mean, you're just talking about having standard handouts after particular groups, you know, with a kind of checklist of questions, you know, are you talking about having computer programs that they go on? You know, how have you set that up in the past? 
Um, I've set it up just sort of uh, old-fashioned sort of paper and pen and giving everybody uh, in uh, at the end of the group process um, uh, four to six, seven questions to uh, to answer and to engage with you know um, what they what they got out of the group, um, what kind of understanding with an understanding you know with, for the patients that there's no there's no right or wrong. They're speaking to their own subjective experience of uh, the group process and the information that they received, and that um, if they didn't, for whatever reason, really absorb the material <clears throat> and didn't understand it, excuse me then um, that that material can be augmented uh, both through, uh, you know, handouts or, uh, or through some work with their primary therapist. Um, so, and, 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 you know, and don't forget that this is really all predicated on a sort of treatment-naive patient because the, the problem becomes very, very different uh, when you are in, a, in an agency where a number of your patients have already been to treatment multiple times because um, they often um, have received so much information that a lot of the information that you're giving them is, uh, is sort of, you know, deja vu. And so they could be sitting up at the front of the class and doing a presentation on the disease model or, you know, addiction in the brain or sort of trauma or whatever it is. Um, so that becomes a, a whole different problem when you are thinking about your uh, patient population. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's always a huge difference between knowledge and experiential learning, right? You know, to actually understand something intuitively and be able to act upon it is, is very different from just kind of remembering facts in the brain. Something I really liked that you brought up was this qualitative analysis of what people are learning. Um, and I think really good clinicians, what they do, just like really good teachers, is they adapt their programming right, based on the feedback that they're getting from students or patients. So, right. you know, you come into a group and you've got a certain agenda, but then based on the feedback of what you're seeing happen in the group, um, both verbally maybe, as well as what's kind of handed out in assessments, you can say, okay, well, I really wanted to do this tomorrow, but based on the feedback I'm getting, I should do, you know, Z instead. Um, so from a kind of organizational standpoint, how do you foster, sorry, <coughs> How do you foster that training with clinicians um, to help them be more focused on feedback loops, more focused on organic and, you know, kind of flexible methods within the clinical environment? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And I think that takes a lot of um, dedicated time to the clinical group. Um, and, 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 you know, and that has to be part of an agency culture. Uh, the clinicians cannot work um in um in their sort of offices uh like independent practitioners because otherwise you have a complete disconnect between what the sort of a, uh, what the patient's experience and the overall sort of clinical mission so involving the the whole clinical team with the curriculum and helping them to really understand what is the clinical objective what is the learning objective and then how to basically pivot if uh, that patient group who should have had an introduction to, let's say, um, uh, a curriculum on the disease model, um, if, if they find that there's some new members or some of the members don't uh, really understand the material, um, all those kind of what-if scenarios have to be worked out as part of a clinical group with a clinical director um, so that there is a very cohesive um, skill set and cohesive um, direction uh, so that the, the clinical body moves as one. Um, you have some clinical objectives, but then you have individualized uh, ability to pivot or to uh, teach to the class, if you like, um, in, um, in, in specific circumstances. But it's always predicated by uh, allowing the clinical team to become a sort of um, a cohesive unit. For me, I think there's a cultural shift that's often needed there. You know, this idea that you are learning as much from the patients as the patients are learning right. from you. Um, you know, again, parallels in the teaching environment, right? You know, where 
we used to get teachers, and I've seen clinicians do this as well, where they're like, well, this student isn't ready to learn, or this student shouldn't be in my class because X, Y, Z, right? Well, if the student could learn on their own, they wouldn't be here, right? I hired you to teach the students that need support, just in the same way that I'm hiring clinicians to help the people that need the most support, right? If they could do it on their own, they wouldn't be in our program. So that's why they're here. And an interesting comment that you made to me before was that, you know, the um, most reluctant or non-compliant patients are often sometimes the most honest in the milieu. So <laughs> you want to uh, kind of comment on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're social animals and um, there's a lot of um, kind of coded and um, information that we pick up when we enter a sort of social group. The, um, and if you like, treatment, uh, residential treatment is both a social group and it's a culture. Um, you know, um, let's talk just about patients who are treatment naive, who haven't been in treatment. Um, we all have relational strategies that we've learned in sort of childhood and in school in how to move about in a social uh, group uh, and uh, also how to relate to authority, right? So, um, what tends to happen is that with a lot of patients who have had um, abuse or trauma and are, um, have uh, difficulty uh, basically asserting their, uh, themselves or finding a voice or advocating, and I would say that helping patients to find their voice is one of uh, the primary um, um, tasks in a uh, in in the journey of recovery, and so um, it's it's compliant patients who basically understand the rules of the game. They understand the rules of engagement, and um, it's much easier to sort of fly under the radar and comply in treatment than to be really honest and kind of take a stand when uh, you disagree with something or to really own up to the fact that there is a high level of ambivalence uh, for our uh, for, for themselves. So the patients who come in who are very clear about their ambivalence or are clear about their resistance, in a way, are far more uh, present and far more honest. Uh, and in fact, I consider that kind of patient uh, a bit of a blessing because you know exactly what you're working with. But patients who are compliant in their ambivalence tend to manage to do well in the treatment setting. You know, they'll show up to group every morning. They get up. They make their bed. Uh, they do their assignments. They show up to their clinical appointments, um, but don't really deal with their uh, ambivalence about giving up their sort of substance of choice. And, you know, you know to me... Um, treating substance abuse uh, disorders, um, it's really, um, it's part of a grieving process for the vast majority of, um, of the patients. Ultimately, that substance has become the most important relationship that um, they've ever had. And letting go of that relationship, notwithstanding all the consequences, including overdoses and near sort of fatal uh, car crashes and so on and so forth. Um, but there is a strong reluctance, reluctance to um, to give up that thing that is known and uh, that has brought so much comfort. So, um, you know, the substance isn't a problem. It's been a solution for a very long time. And unless the treatment center is able to engage with ambivalence for the patient, even the ones who are most compliant, and really um, enable them to find their voice and be able to articulate uh, their struggle with uh, that grief process, uh, then um, we get compliance, we get patients who do well in treatment and then relapse right after treatment. And, and then the sort of whole treatment milieu is asking themselves, well, what happened? They were a great patient. We thought they had it. But it's very easy for the patients to pick up on um, the language, the culture, uh, the behavior in a treatment facility. And then if the patient's already been in treatment before, that becomes incredibly easy. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you said that, that, you know, the alcohol, the substance or whatever the addiction is, has been a solution for a very long time. And it's right. You know, often um, I see programs don't give patients enough credit 
right? You know, I mean, if you threw most people out in the street and said, hey, you know, you have no money, no job, felony is on record, you know, and you need some heroin today, figure it out. Most people can't do it, right? There's a very high level of intelligence that people are using to live on the street, to get access to drugs or other addictions um, when they don't have a lot of resources, you know, and, and we often fail to recognize that. And what, exactly what you're talking about, I mean, I think of my own treatment experience, you know, I, I was exactly what we said, you know, I was very compliant. I did exactly what I was supposed to do, but I thought treatment was ridiculous, right? I was just like, this is a waste of my time. You know, I'm just going to sit here and go through it. Um, and most people in the program did the same thing. You know, I was under 21 when I went through treatment, but most people in my group were over 21. And I found out later on that they would all go to the bar after, um, after outpatient treatment, right? And they were all right. passed, they all complied, you know, and so there's too much of an emphasis on compliance within the clinical environment, whereas an effective clinician, what they're going to do is they're actually going to get to the root cause of what's driving people's addictions, why it is a solution for them, you know, and having real honest conversations with them rather than, <coughs> sorry, rather than talking about um, just complying, right? You know, do, do what I say is not going to do much for a lot of people. And that's where I think a lot of programs become ineffective is they don't have the clinicians really building the relationships and looking at things from a patient-centered perspective they're just kind of telling them what to do and the, and the patients aren't super into authority as it is right <laughs> right and, and and you know and that also speaks to the fact that um in 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 treatment centers that um basically have a mixed milieu uh so you know 18 to 60 let's say um with the non-differentiated age groups um, that becomes really an issue because when you're dealing with, you know, young adults and, you know, I would say that the definition of young adult can go, all, I mean, there are outliers all the way into sort of 30s uh, because oftentimes drugs and alcohol kind of create a case of arrested development. But um, what tends to happen in a non-differentiated milieu, the younger adults uh, are going to create behavioral issues that then the treatment center has to defend against uh, because the older adults are sort of behaving differently or have a different set of values. Um, and then, um, you know, the focus is on behavioral interventions. The other thing that I would say is that the non-differentiation and uh, both in a milieu and uh, as far as approach and clinical approach and curriculum between, let's say, um, heroin addicts and alcoholics uh, also creates a lot of uh, challenges because there are two completely different experiences and um, <clears throat> putting um, addicts and alcoholics in the same group um, it makes it very difficult. Yes, on, on the surface, it's, you know, everybody's sort of challenge is to kind of identify with, you know, the primary issue and not being focused on the substances per se, but the lifestyle is so different. Um, and um, the motivation is very different, and the ambivalence is very different. So the things that, you know, a 22-year-old heroin addict has had to deal with and some of the things that they are part of their story is very different for a patient who's in their 30s or 40s, who has a family, has a job, and their alcohol use has sort of taken over their lives. Um, but to put everybody in the same group, and create the same curriculum for everybody, um, I think is a bit of a disservice to um, each and every patient. Yeah, I would agree. That's a big struggle with a lot of programs. But, you know, how do you actually recommend setting that up? Because obviously, if you're a small program, it's very, very hard to offer multiple tracks. I'm o I've only got 25 beds, right? I can't have four separate groups running for different ages and other four groups running for different substance abuses. Um, you know, what's your recommendation there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, um, but I think that to some extent, this has to do with agency and program specializations. Um, I, I think that, um, and it sort of starts out with um, the overall sort of vision uh, and then what translates into a sort of mission uh, statement for the agency. But um, I would say that to have an ongoing um, focus and um, on um, a mastery of both the clinical modality and a population that they're, you know, that they're primarily focused on is what gets better and better outcomes. 
Um, the same way that we don't treat substance abuse disorders with eating disorders at the same time, um, I would say that our industry would probably benefit from centers saying, hey, you know what, this is our, and, and there are centers that do this. You know, we are primarily focused on 18 to 25 young adults um, and, uh, and some are adult-only programs. And I think that at some point, you cannot be a jack-of-all-trades and you need to really define who your client population, uh, the, the one that you serve best that has affinity with your clinical milieu as well. And uh, I think that gets uh, better fit, better outcomes. I agree. I mean, that's an excellent point, you know, and that's really probably the, the most effective strategy from both a clinical standpoint and a business standpoint is niching down and saying, who do we serve? And then becoming really, really good at, you know, a specific segment of the population, whether it is drugs of choice or addiction or age groups or genders. Um, absolutely. Okay, so we've talked a lot about different kind of aspects of, of clinical care, right? We've talked about some assessments and clinical protocols being put into place. Um, at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to outcomes, uh, getting data, analyzing data, right? So from your previous experience, what recommendations do you have in terms of putting in data tracking and analytics gathering um, from the clinical side? And then after it's there, how do you use it? Well, um, I think that um, you know some of the some of the talking points earlier about assessing what patients are assimilating um, is a really good start. Um, being able to uh, assess um, the patient's progress from the patient's standpoint. So there are a number of clinical tools. Um, um, so the SRS or the ORS or the GRS are really excellent clinical tools. Um, Scott Miller, um, it's who had the Center for Clinical Excellence, uh, based on the work by Norm Hoffman, are uh, two luminaries in uh, in this field as far as uh, outcomes and clinical fit and feedback informed treatment, um, and that's a that's a great start um, whilst uh, the patient is in treatment. But then as far as ongoing outcomes, I think that you have to look at what um, your definition of success is. And I think we're still uh, looking at um, a, um, some, uh, some disagreement um, as to what is a successful outcome. Is a successful outcome continued and abstinence for a period of time or does it allow for uh, let's say a relapse and shorter than a period of time or are we looking at quality of life indicators are we looking at you know non-involvement with the criminal justice system are we looking at sort of family feedback so other stakeholders in the community is interesting um, I just kind of uh, posted something that came out by William White there is a meta uh, uh, study analysis uh, by the state of Pennsylvania, um, evaluated by William White, uh, who is one of the foremost writers in, in addiction, um, basically looking at outcomes. And, you know, he differentiates between, I think, eight uh, to nine different subsets of outcomes. And I think you have to be clear from the start as to what uh, is an outcome for, for your agency. Uh, because I think we've had a, a, a black and white paradigm. It's either total abstinence or it's failure or it's treatment failure. And uh, I, I believe we have to be, uh, we have to broaden that uh, definition. Yeah, I, I love William White. He's got some fantastic stuff out there. Uh, I was just reading something uh, from him on re, redefining chronic relapse or if that's even a useful term. But um, obviously that's a... Yeah. It's a topic where we don't have time for today. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I think the last question I wanted to get into here before we wrap up is just some real specifics, right? So we talked a lot about this kind of organic need. You know, there's a there's um, balance between the quantitative, um, setting up the protocols, analyzing the data, and the qualitative, right? Understanding the patient, adapting your clinical programming to the particular patients you 
have at any given time. So what kind of specific procedures or training processes have you put in place? You know, do you have clinicians meeting once a week as a group? Um, how are they analyzing the feedback? Do you go in and observe their clinical program and do feedback sessions? You know, just some kind of the, the specifics. Yeah, um, I, I would say that uh, a really good start is um, helping clinicians to basically process their own experience in a treatment setting uh, because that does a lot to support clinicians. So I, I think we have this sort of tendency to look at um, the, the therapist, the clinician, as somebody who is able to compartmentalize everything and that they leave their personal lives at the door and then they are 110% available to the clients that they see. <clears throat> and that's unreasonable. There is also an expectation that I think starts out uh, perhaps in the educational field that if you are able to compartmentalize everything, then you can work with absolutely any patient. Um, and I disagree with that. I think that every therapist has a range of patients that they can work with and a range of disorders that they're good at working at and then a sweet spot. Um, but I think that when in an agency you create a platform for the therapist to basically receive groups of vision and be able to, um, and not by a therapist within the agency, but by an outside supervisor, so outsource those services, and provide a platform once or twice a week for the clinicians to process their own um, their own transference and counter-transference and what's going on in their lives, you create a much tighter-knit uh, and cohesive clinical uh, set. But ultimately, you know, the X factor, I mean, we know from research that it's not the modality that the clinician is trained on, uh, but it's the clinician's ability to create a rapport. So right. uh, enhancing that skill set is really your best bet to get better outcomes. So the group supervision can be one, um, certainly good individual supervision um, in the facility, um, having clinicians having a stake in the delivery of services and, and, and having them participate in, you know, curriculum building and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, we talk so much about, you know, um, self-care, but uh, then there is very little done on an agency basis, at least it's a lot of the places I've sort of visited and have been in um, to create a place for the clinicians to actually practice uh, self-care. So um, I think that's a challenge, and I think it's a challenge because, you know, a lot of uh, those high sort of caseload with groups and individual uh, caseloads. But if the agency is driven by enhancing the therapist experience, uh, then uh, you have um, higher outcomes and you have low attrition rates. Um, part of the challenge, of course, is to be able to bring on clinicians and give them really good onboarding um, when they come on so that um, they're not just sort of thrown into the, the milieu and are, and, are, and are asked to sort of perform tasks. And um, unfortunately, Onboarding in uh, behavioral health agencies, I think, is something that uh, could be a lot, lot uh, stronger. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, strong onboarding processes are always helpful, I think, across the board for any um, business unit, clinical included. You know, I've always found that obviously the peer observations as well as having supervisor observations are helpful. Um, and having clinicians watch other clinicians that are good at things, you know, a good medical director, in my opinion, will know, like you said, what the sweet spots are. You know, so I know that I have a particular clinician that's really good at people struggling with heroin abuse. And so when I go and observe, you know, a clinician that's maybe not doing so well with individuals in that area, I can go and have them observe, you know, the better clinicians group and then having them sit down and do feedback, I think can be super helpful. Yeah. Um, because like you said, you have to shift the mindset and shift the culture to not delivering the content or going through the group, but did I get the outcomes that I want? Right. I mean, that's the most important thing. And if people switch that mindset and start looking at it and say, did I get the outcomes I want from the patient? Why or why not? Well, then I can go back and use that data to improve my own um, clinical capabilities. Yeah. 
Well, and the other thing I would say is um, shifting the focus and the direction of the clinical director in an agency. Generally, the clinical director is tasked with sort of supervision and, and, and generally it's task oriented or documentation type of uh, supervision. And I would posit that the primary role of the clinical director is the emotional and psychological well-being of the clinical team, uh, both in the beginning when they hire uh, a clinician to make sure that it's going to be a good fit with the rest of the other clinicians and they're going to bring some complementary skills. But ultimately, their emotional process, their psychological well-being is the primary caseload of the clinical director. Uh, and that's a slightly different focus from task and performance-oriented uh, reviews or assessments and evaluations. Right. Well, Andrew, I know you got to catch a flight here, um, so I appreciate you taking the time to join us. And if listeners want to reach out to you, how would they do so? Um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn or through my email, andrewsadoli at yahoo.com. Um, Nick, thank you very much. It's been a, a lovely uh, conversation. I appreciate uh, your podcast, and thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you coming on. I think this was a wealth of information. Um, to all our listeners out there, as always, thank you for joining us. You can download or listen to this podcast almost anywhere where podcasts are found. Stream it on the way to work or while you're at the gym. And as always, I'm Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., and we will see you next time.